Hey there, joystick jockeys. Ready to drop some quarters and warp back to the neon-lit arcades of yesteryears? Today, we're blasting off into orbit with one of the most iconic arcade cabinets from the golden age of arcades, the 1981 side-scrolling shoot-'em-up, Defender. We'll be pulling back the curtain on Defender and the mastermind behind its pixelated perfection, Eugene Jarvis. It's a tale of innovation and arcade wizardry that changed the gaming landscape forever. So stick around and join us as we get ready to defend humanity one pixel at a time on today's trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 178th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game or the people who've created it. It can be about a gaming console and the company that brought it to life. Sometimes we talk about all the technologies that make it all happen. Whatever we're talking about with each story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, today, today we're going to look at the history of Williams and the history of the 1981 side-scrolling shoot-'em-up Defender. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who recently had his own close call with aliens. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, go ahead and tell everyone about your alien encounter. Well, Dave, you see, there was this bright light and these weird noises. And the next thing I knew, we were just partying it up. These were party aliens. I mean, you can call them what you want, Dave, but we had a fun time. They were party aliens and not probe aliens. Well, we're going to put a stopper on that, Dave. (laughs) Well, that's the concept of a probe. There are things may have been probed. You you never know. Just depends on (laughs) how you want to view it. That's a party in someone's book. (laughs) Got that right, Dave. (laughs) Okay, well, that was interesting. So what's the deal with this week in gaming history? (laughs) Well, Dave. It's the week of January 21st, 2024, and there's certainly some things of note throughout the years. 39 years ago, in 1985, Nintendo released Balloon Fight for the Famicom. Okay. A few years later, in 87, Dragon Warrior 2 is released to the world. Okay. On a year beyond that, in 98, Nintendo released Ice Hockey for the Famicom disc system. Those are all solid, solid additions to the Nintendo Entertainment System. I would have to agree, but they also hit a home run 30 years ago in 94. They released the first in the Wario series, Wario Land, Super Mario Land 3. And had started a history of crusty, mean Italians. Damn straight, Dave. The farting wonder. The farting wonder. Yeah, exactly. 26 years ago, in 1998, Resident Evil 2 was released to the world. We learned about that back in episode 125, so if you'd like to learn about it, 
Go check it out. Okay. While that was happening, Micropro Software launched a lawsuit against Activision in Avalon Hill. They were the copyright owner of the Civilization board game, which was not related to the computer game. Avalon Hill was a publisher of the board game outside Europe, and Activision licensed the name from them to introduce Civ clones. It was eventually settled outside of court. Technically, Micropros won. Avalon Hill promised not to license anybody. And Activision was able to publish one more game with the license Avalon Hill granted to them. And Micropros retained all rights to Civilization. I should look up that Civ clone game because I have no clue what it was. Not, not, you know, no clue. I don't know, Dave. You'll have to figure it out and let us know. Mm-hmm. And on a similar note, 22 years ago in 2002, Sid Meier's SimGolf was released for Windows. Okay. 19 years ago in 2005, Take-Two launched the 2K Games publishing label, which was published many well-received titles in the years since, including Bioshock, Borderlands, Civilization, XCOM, and the NBA 2K series. 16 years ago in 2008, Burnout Paradise was released, which was a freaking banger if you never played it. It wasn't the best in the Burnout series, but it was still a Burnout game, so it was still pretty fun. It's still the last in the Burnout series. Can you believe that? Uh, Yeah, I know. And after that, I can understand why, but it was still worth a play. So my goodness, if, if they went back one game in the series two, but even just one game, I mean, two would be ideal, but one game, if they went back one game and said, we're remaking this game. I mean, they'd have a hit. They'd have a hit. Look how many people go to play Forza horizon. If you introduced another arcade racer, that's just a solid that is burnout back into the mix. People would buy the heck out of it. You got that right, Dave. So who knows? Maybe we can keep hoping. Maybe. 11 years ago in 2013, then Atari Interactive Inc. filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States. Womp womp. Uh... And celebrating its third birthday is Dungeon and Cox, which at the time of this research was 69 cents on Steam. Oh, was it now? Yes, indeedy, Dave. And what is Dungeons and Cox? Well, Dave, it tells the story of Matthew Delaney, who was forced to leave his country after it had been captured and ravaged by geese. Geese? Huh? Okay. Accompanied by his loyal friends, the Goose Merchant, the Young Pimp, and Conquistador the Bear, he reaches the shore of the New World and plans on selling goods. And when things don't go exactly as planned. No, they never do. No, they never do. So it's an old third person adventure game with platform puzzles and stealth. So if that's your thing and you want to find out why things didn't go as planned, give it a play. Okay. And that will be it for our gaming history wrap up, Dave. So what do you have for our gaming history fans today? Like so many other developers from the early years of the video game industry, Eugene Jarvis did not grow up around computers. They simply didn't exist in the homes, you know, in the 60s and 70s. The first time that Jarvis was able to experience a computer was in high school 
when he attended a one-day course on Fortran programming given by IBM. After the presentation, he was inspired to study computers. He ended up attending college at the University of California, Berkeley, to get a computer science degree. And it was at Berkeley that he experienced Space War, which is arguably one of the most influential games in early history gaming. It was the first video game <laughs> for a lot of people. And as he was nearing the end of his degree, he interviewed for a job with Atari, hoping to contribute to the industry, but they never called him back. Also, wah, wah, wah. Right you are, Dave. Oh, no. After graduating, he took a job with Hewlett Packard HP and was assigned a project to help create a compiler for another programming language, COBOL. It was a six-year project that had been just getting off the ground. He was hired into a team to create this compiler, you know, long-term security. But after three days, he decided that he couldn't stand the culture at HP, the work culture, and he quit. So, so much for a six-year secure project. Yeah, it doesn't sound like things are going quite too well here, Dave. Well, luckily, a few days later, in what was about three months after his interview, Atari did actually call him back with a job offer. Hey, let's go. Hey. So Eugene Jarvis was hired into Atari, and he was assigned to a team that was meant to design pinball games that used a microprocessor. That was a new thing for the pinball industry because the earlier games were mostly mechanical, like electromechanical games. And as microprocessors began to be used in video games, the pinball industry was starting to adopt them. About a week after Jarvis was hired into Atari, his boss quit. And then a week later, they fired his boss... So he was left to his own devices pretty much from the get-go. He was interviewed for a book called Halasan Days, which is a book full of interviews with classic gaming programmers. And in said interview, he said, Atari was a wild place to work in the late 70s. Half the employees were partying stoners who did virtually nothing, and the rest were amazing geeks who worked like banshees. At the time, Jobs, Steve Jobs, and Steve Wozniak were trying to get breakout working. An eight-player tank was the ultimate multiplayer experience. Every couple of weeks, Nolan Bushnell and his buddy Gene Lipkin would come down to engineering, critique your game with often bizarre and thought-provoking, but totally irrelevant suggestions. When they were gone... You just do what you had in mind originally, since in another two weeks' time, they would forget their prior recommendations and have new and totally unrelated bizarre suggestions. That's awesome. <laughs> that does sound awesome. During his time at Atari, Jarvis has credits on four different pinball machines that I could find information on. In 1977... He has a software and sound credit on a machine called Time 2000. 
Also in 1977, he is credited as the software designer on a super wide body machine called the Airborne Avenger. Now, Airborne Avenger is an incredibly important machine for pinball enthusiasts. Its designer, who worked alongside Jarvis, is a man named Steve Ritchie. Now, Steve Ritchie now holds the record as the best-selling pinball designer in history. And we're definitely not done with him in this story yet, but he's an important figure, and that was his that was his that was his his machine. So in September of 1978, Jarvis has another software credit on a pinball machine named Space Riders. And then in March of 1979, Jarvis and Richie teamed up once again to create a licensed Superman pinball machine. So in his time at Atari, he made these four different pinball machines. Not surprising at all if the culture was any giveaway. You know, a few years into that project or those projects, the pinball division at Atari was shut down. While working on the Superman pinball machine, Steve Ritchie, the famous designer, had been offered a job at Williams, who was a well-known pinball manufacturer. So when Atari shut down their pinball division, Eugene Jarvis needed a new outlet for all his experience. You know, all he had done in the video game industry up until that point was work on pinball machines. So he decided to go work for Williams as well. You know, use your pinball experience to work with the pinball company. Makes sense. Uh, I would say so, Dave. Williams was a very small place engineering wise, he said when he was asked about the atmosphere at Williams in the same interview. The company had nearly gone bankrupt a few years before, so the staff was very lean. There were two or three programmers, two or three hardware guys, and a handful of mechanical designers. The sales and marketing department was an old guy with a phone. It was completely sink or swim, as no one in management really knew the technology. Since there was nobody to tell us what to do, we had complete creative freedom. This was a huge, grimy, old World War II-era factory with a thousand employees making everything from transformers to switches to metal stampings to circuit boards to fin finished games. If the latest game stunk, everyone was laid off until the next model was ready. Basically, the fate of the company constantly rested in the hands of a couple of 19-year-olds. Hmm. So at Williams, Jarvis enjoyed continued success as a programmer. He worked on sound and software in 1979 on a table called Laserball. He followed that up later that year with a sound credit on a pinball machine called Gorgar. Now, Gorgar is incredibly important in pinball history because it was the first talking pinball machine. It had a vocabulary of seven words. Those seven words, I looked them up. They were Gorgar, Speaks, Beat, you, me, hurt, and got. And all seven could be combined together in different ways for different phrases. So like, you know, Gorgar beat you. Don't hurt. Gor There's no don't. I already messed it up. What do we got? Got me hurt Gorgar? Is that, could have said that? Yeah. Probably, yeah. What do you think? Gorgar speaks? Like, yeah, I don't yeah. know, Dave. Yeah, you, you hit it on the head with a lot of them. 
Oh, yeah, that was it, huh? No more? Yep, no more. You know, in 1979, a talking pinball machine was absolutely the cutting edge of technology. And they segued that into early 1980 when he teamed up again with Steve Ritchie to earn software and sound credits on a machine called Firepower. Again, another important game. Very, very important for pinball history, actually. Not only does it have a voice module with 11-word vocabulary, wow, mm. it's the second pinball table ever to feature a sp- speech, but most importantly, it has a bunch of firsts. It's the first pinball machine uh, to ever have a lane change feature. It was the first solid-state pinball machine to have a multi-ball feature. And it was the first pinball machine to ever have a playfield animation, which again, cutting edge technology in 1980. These all were for, I mean, all purposes, not just ours, successful machines. But when you have a business model that hinges on the success of every single title, of course, you're going to look towards what people are playing what's popular, what they're spending money on. And by this time, we are well, well, well into the golden age of arcades. So at the time, according to Jarvis, you know, games like Space War, Space Invaders, and Asteroids, they were the big hits at the arcades. You know, by 1979, these coin-operated games were all the rage. So Williams decided that they wanted to get into the video game business. No surprise, right? Go where the money is. Got that right. Initially, the company created an arcade cabinet called Paddleball, which was just a Pong clone. If you'll recall, I mean, almost any topic that we've talked about the early times of arcades. Once there was a popular game, everyone just cloned it and tried to, you know, wedge theirs into arcades everywhere. So there were clones everywhere, Um, especially Pong. Pong was probably cloned by every company. Every, you know, the first generation of home consoles were mostly cloned Pong clones too. So Pong Pong was the one. It wasn't anything special, Paddleball. It certainly wasn't going to put Williams on the map. So they got it out. And then it was time for the company to look at what's next. You know, it's time to make the next great video game. Put her, put ourselves in the homes, put ourselves on the map, you know. And they already had a guy who was a great programmer. He had just programmed a bunch of their hit pinball machines. And that, of course, was Eugene Jarvis. So they asked him to head development on a new video game. Since Williams as a company, though, didn't have any experience with electronic video games. Management didn't actually know what expectations to set. So Jarvis and his team, they were pretty much given creative control to do as they pleased. Have you ever played Defender? Do you think? I cannot say that I have, Dave. No, completely new one for you. Yeah. So initially, the team spends roughly three or four months developing color variations of Space Invaders 
and color variations of asteroids. First inspired by Space Invaders, they created a game that played very, very similarly. But after a couple of weeks, they just abandoned the idea because they felt it just wasn't very much fun compared to, well, Space Invaders. And then they shifted their focus to recreating Asteroids. But Asteroids was created on an old vector monitor. That's what it was known for. It's very stylistic vector graphics. And they were looking to do a color game on a newer screen. So as they tried to bring their version of Asteroids into the modern age, it just didn't feel right. It wasn't fun. It did not look good. And they realized that recreating these older popular games, it just wasn't going to work for this team. So they went back to the drawing board and they held a brainstorming session. Okay, They began to pick out gameplay elements that they liked, that they had kind of felt comfortable with in their last three or four months of experimenting. You know, right from the get-go, they knew they were going to make a color game because they saw color as the future, and they considered themselves, as Jarvis put in his interview, hip dudes. Me too, Jarvis. Me too. They had picked Space Invaders and Asteroids to recreate, not just because of their popularity, but also because space is a very abstract concept. We had limited graphic ability, Jarvis said in an interview. This was found in a book called Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. It's on my, it's on my bookshelf. It's a great book. Read it. Just making a person look like a person was very difficult. It was almost as if you wanted to go to more abstract themes because the way people couldn't say, you know, that thing looks like shit. That's right from the book. Promise. So, yeah, so they they kind of use space as an excuse for like, hey, it's supposed to look like that because you don't know space and you don't know what space looks like. Right. Abstract concept. Yeah, the that team, makes sense. The team also agreed that one of the asteroids elements that they really liked was the ability to wrap around the screen. You know, you exit on the right side of the screen and you come back to the left side of the screen. They like the wrap around. They felt that allowing a player to fly off the screen was exciting and it made the game world larger than just what was seen on the screen. So building off this idea, they began to envision a version of space invaders that was rotated 90 degrees. So instead of the ship moving side to side, fighting against aliens from above, the ship would move up and down fighting aliens that came from side to side. So in an early prototype, they explored this concept in terror in, in, alongside asteroids. They had large asteroids that was coming across the screen from either side, but they found that that wasn't very much fun either. As part of this process, Jarvis's pinball buddy, famous pinball game designer Steve Ritchie, that's what we'll just call him, he gets a title now, he actually suggested that the game be able to scroll in either direction instead of just left or right, like pretty much any other game, right? So this becomes a thing for the team. You know, all the games up until then went in one direction and they said, hey, 
it's it'll be cool if you can go left and the screen scrolls left or if you can go right and the screen scrolls right so again they're expanding on this concept of a game world that's bigger than just the screen that you're looking at you know and so they continue to work on this concept for a few more months they're now about six months into the development of this game and they really don't have a game to show for it they had some of the mechanics worked out but really nothing behind it so they went back and started playing other games and they were determined at this point to figure out what worked to figure out what was fun to figure out what was interesting and one of the things they determined at this point was that they wanted to include the concept of survival to make things interesting right so it's not just about it's not just about killing things that come at you it's about surviving something right because then there's a there's something at stake is the best way to put it that's why we like survival games right because there's something at stake got that right dave for this concept to happen they needed a compelling enemy so they worked on aliens and the first one they came up with was an enemy called the lander which is pretty much like the enemy that's synonymous with Defender at this point. So things are cruising along at this point. Things are going well. They are piecing things together bit by bit. They are slowly working out the game mechanics. They're working on the enemies now, which means they have a game in which you shoot up waves of enemies as they come towards you. But what is the game? They needed to call it something. And for that, Jarvis turned towards a 1960s television show called The Defenders. Now, The Defenders as a TV show has nothing to do with the video game. It was a courtroom drama that ran on CBS from 1961 to 1965. But its name, the title of the game, Defender, represented the objective of the game, which was defending in our case, people. That's what it ended up being. Astronauts, if you will. And the title Defender to them as a team, it helped justify the violence that the game portrayed. And from there, with a title and a basic gameplay loop, everything else was just a matter of fleshing everything out. You know, they added astronauts as a detail on the space theme. Because again, if your theme is survival, you need to have something that needs to survive. You need to give players something to defend, to care about as the animals come towards them. And then, of course, you have to give the astronauts a reason to be there. So the team added a planetscape, which was another idea that Steve Ritchie, famous pinball designer. That's fun to say now. I can tell, Dave. I know. The planetscape was something else that Steve Ritchie contributed to the team so it's now about july and the team is under a lot of pressure to finish the game so it can be presented at the amusement and music operators association or amoa trade show in september they're still working on the astronauts and jarvis is how should i put it being encouraged to omit them to meet deadlines which, of course, he doesn't want to do. You know, he has a vision. 
he has a, a, a game in mind and he he wants to make the game he wants to make. There was so much tension at this point between Eugene Jarvis and upper management that he that he is later quoted as saying that he contemplated resigning from Williams during this period. But luckily, a new programmer named Sam Dicker was hired. Sam Dicker was young. Sam Dicker was smart. Sam Dicker ended up being a fantastic addition to the Defender team. He helped program the remaining elements in while also adding visual and audio effects to the mix. Um, Things that the team hadn't really thought of until that point, like, you know, missiles, you know, when, when a shot hits, uh, hits one of the enemies, it kind of like has particle effects that show a hit, for instance, that kind of stuff. Seeing these new additions from a new member of the team really brought Jarvis back into the mix. You know, it it decided him to forgo his differences with upper management. It made him excited about the project again, and and they were back on track. So with some wind under their wings, the team got to improving on the enemies in the game. The landers were given the ability to capture humans. And this led to a new enemy, the mutants, who were humans that turned hostile after being captured. Bombers were given more elements to avoid. Swarmers and pods were added to threaten the spaceship and not the astronauts. And a thing called an enemy called baiters were added to pressure the player into not staying in one place for too long. So, you know, it's kind of cool because each of these enemies has a reason, right? You know, this one is here to threaten the astronauts. This one's here so you just can't stay in one spot and shoot up things. There was a purpose to everything that they added to the game. By now, we're heading into September. The AMOA show is right around the corner, and the game still isn't finished. So every single programmer that was employed at Williams was put onto the project in order to make the deadline. They get there. Obviously, we're talking about this game now. And the evening before the AMOA show opens, they deliver the arcade cabinets. And as they're standing among the show floor, looking at all the competition, taking in the sights, taking in the sounds, they realize that they never added an attract mode to the game. Now, if you don't know what an attract mode is, it's when you're in an arcade and no one's playing it, and it is the sequence that plays that does things to entice people to come over. You know, it's an arcade cabinet that says, come play Defender, and it'll show a bunch of really exciting gameplay shots from the game. You know, that's that's an attract mode. They They hadn't done it. They also realized that at that point they had never put a high score system in either. So the team spent the whole night working on fixing both. They got the attract mode coded. They added the high score table. They play tested everything. They did some bug fixing, you know, for bugs they found as they were working through this process. And then comes the next morning. The team creates the final EEPROM chips and installs them into the cabinet. And poof. They go up in smoke. 
No. They installed them backwards. And they caused an electrical short. So at the very last minute, the team finds themselves having to get their hands on and burn another set of EEPROM chips, which they manage to do. It gets put into the machine. Everything works great. And they manage to make it on time for the trade show. So there is one interesting, one other interesting thing about this version of the game that was first showed. It has five levels. That's unique because the original game has no levels. Um, the original game, just you keep going and it gets harder and harder until you, you don't. They had only featured five levels in this in this demo, I mean, the game, because Defender is a difficult game. And it's so difficult that the team felt that only having five levels in there was more than enough for people. In fact, most of the team couldn't even get past the third level. So they felt giving a few extras was was going to be it. But after taking feedback and thinking about it after the AMOA show, they decided that maybe people would surprise them and surpass their expectations. So they changed the gameplay to just go on indefinitely. Now, the 1980 AMOA, which is what this was, was full of heavy hitters. Defender was on the show floor uh, up against the likes of Pac-Man, Rally X, Battlezone, Berserk, Crazy Climber, Star Castle, Space Panic, among others. And while Defender got a few nods, it was definitely not the game that was talked about when you look at media coverage coming out of the show. So the team at Williams really wasn't sure about what to expect as they were coming out of the trade show. But orders started to come in. Slowly, orders started to come in. Uh, Larry DeMar, who was one of the other designers we didn't really talk about, but he worked on the team, he recalled an early memory that he had uh, that he recalled just after the game came out. I came into an arcade on a Friday night, he said. And there was a crowd of people four deep around this game, putting in their quarters and lasting maybe 35, 40 seconds. Defender was a very ferocious game, very different controls. They were seeing the special effects in the game and they just, they wanted to do it. One after the other, they were throwing quarters in. Defender made $700 in its first week. I have never seen a quarter of play video game make money like that. Not before and not after Defender. It was the most phenomenal collection anyone had ever seen. And so this carried on, and it wasn't long before it was very obvious that the team at Williams had brought something special to the world. Which begs the question, do you have something special to bring to the world? Do you have an interesting story to share with anyone who will listen? Have you ever considered starting your own podcast but just aren't sure where to start? We'll try using the all-in-one podcasting suite provided by our friends at Zencaster. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K videos with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. And with Zencaster... 
You never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums and ahs, removes those awkward pauses in conversation. You can set the right podcast loudness. You can reduce background noise. It's got a whole bunch of really cool audio features that all can happen at a single click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, you can relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast, or maybe you just want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code, all one word, memory card lane, and you can get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today, and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. Go out there and make the next great podcast creation with the great set of tools provided by Zencaster. So Rob, Defender Defender's one of those games that definitely doesn't get the credit it deserves, in my opinion. It, for starters, it's the first side-scrolling shoot-em-up. It is one of the absolute first games to introduce scrolling, which, like the developers had planned on, makes the game world bigger than one screen. It was no longer a game screen. It was a gaming environment, a game world, if you will. And Defender was hard, harder than most games. I mean, even to this day, it's a hard game. It was hard games was something at the time that game designers really weren't about, you know, super hard games. You wanted to make your game hard enough that people wanted to play it and not win it constantly. So they would want to put more quarters in, right? The the whole gaming loop in the beginning of video games was all about more money, right? Still is, Dave. It still is. Yeah. But there's a limit to hard like you want to like you you know that when your game is too hard, it's not accessible to most people. And so that's, you know, nowadays we fix that with with difficulty choices. Right. But back in the day, we didn't we, you know, programming wasn't that sophisticated. You didn't have choices. And so most games weren't created hard. That just wasn't a thing. But that's fair. What Defender showed everyone was that the gaming community was more than willing to be challenged. They were more than willing to step up to the challenge and and they liked they liked a hard game. Defender was also the first game of choice. Well, not first game of choice. Yeah, I guess first game of choice. It was the game of choice for the first ever gaming championship hosted by Twin Galaxies. Twin Galaxies, if you don't know, to this day is one of the recognized authorities on video game records, although I would argue it's not as relevant as it used to be. It still exists and still operates, and they work in tandem with the Guinness Book of World Records nowadays. So Defender's influence on the gaming industry is probably immeasurable, you know? But no one was really sure in the beginning because orders on Defender were really slow to get out. You know, right now, 
where we're at at the story in the beginning of the year is when it was likely sitting in a few random bars, just surprising everyone. But through February and March of 1981, it started trickling everywhere, absolutely everywhere. By the end of 1981, it was popular and it was everywhere. It was at the top of or near the top of most sales charts from about April onwards. It is listed as the second highest grossing game for all of 1981, just behind Pac-Man. And it is the sixth highest grossing game for all of 1982, so people really didn't stop playing it. It actually ended up being Williams' highest selling arcade game, uh, having sold about 55,000 units in its heyday. Damn. And as of 2020... Williams has said that they've actually sold 70,000 cabinets and Defender has grossed about 1.5 billion with a B 1.5 billion dollars worldwide. So I will also admit I I have I played Defender? Yes. Is it a game that stuck with me? No. I mean I know it. I played it again, you know, while going through this story, so I mean I'm familiar with it, but like I don't know. I guess I guess because like these retro games were mostly introduced to me when I was young. So a super hard game like that wouldn't have stuck with me. I don't, I don't think, well, I mean, I know it, I guess based on the story I know. So, you know, you know, Dave, and you, you, you don't even know the game. Not a, not a lick. Nope. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Everything you told me today is news to me. Mm-mm-mm. Missed out on one. I don't know. You don't play a lot of side scrollers, do you? No, not particularly. I mean, honestly, whenever I think hard side scrollers, my first thought always goes to Contra. Yeah. Yeah. I mm. mean, but that's, you know, this, this is where it started. This is where the concept started. I mean, this is more like Gradius side scrolling or, you know, it's a space shooter. I'm more equated to those, but I guess those did segue to the the side-scrolling platformers like Contra and I don't know. Stuff like that. Stuff like that, Dave. Stuff like that. So there have been lots of Defender clones in the years since, but there really hasn't been much done to the series itself. You know, after the success of Defender, Williams as a company grew, but Jarvis wasn't interested in being involved in all the day-to-day mess that came along with that. He just wanted to design video games and wanted to be left alone for everything else. So he and Larry DeMar left to go form an independent video game design firm called VidKids in February of 1981. In October of 1981, they released a game called Stargate, Stargate is an enhanced sequel to Defender. They added new enemies. They added new stages. There were different tools that the players had at their, you know, that they could use to save the astronauts. Fun little side note about Stargate. It was ported to the Nintendo Famicom by HAL Laboratories, which we've covered before. Uh, We've talked about them in our episode on Earthbound in our episode on the Smash Brothers series. So, little uh, bring around there. For legal reasons, 
Stargate was named renamed Defender 2 on some of its home ports, so it's safe to assume it is actually a sequel to the game. In 1982, VidKids released Robotron 1984, which was another commercially successful arcade cabinet. I played a lot of that one. I do know that one. They followed that up with a rail shooter that was tied to Robotron called Blaster. But as we know, 1983 was a very hard year for the gaming industry. It hit Williams, who still published their games, you know, their own games pretty hard. So, in the fallout of everything, VidKids shut down, and Jarvis decided that he was going to go back to school to get his uh, MBA. But after that, he went back to making video games for Williams. He made lots of games, actually, some of which deserve their own episode. He produced NARC. He produced Smash TV, which I freaking love. Smash TV is an amazing game. And he is responsible for the cruising series, like Cruising USA, Cruising the World. You know, those um, I played them mostly in arcades, the racing games, you know? Yeah. In 2001, Jarvis founded Raw Thrills. And Raw Thrills still produces arcade video game cabinets to this day. They've been involved in many of the cabinets that you probably see if you were to walk into like a Chuck E. Cheese's or, you know, any modern arcade today. The Fast and the Furious Machine, Big Buck Hunter Pro, Guitar Hero Arcade, The Walking Dead Arcade, Halo Fireteam Raven, and Terminator Salvation. Fireteam Raven, you didn't you and I play Fireteam Raven when you came here earlier last year or last year? That was that. Uh, wasn't that, I believe that, we did, yeah. That like eight person sit down Halo shooter game that we played. Yeah, that 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 would definitely we did play that one. That was a raw thrills cabinet. Nice. So, so he kind of took that that pinball experience, which pinballs were made for arcades, and then segued into video games, and then said, "Hey, I just love arcades. I love arcades, and I want to keep making games for arcades." And that's what, you know, the company that he founded has continued to do even to this day. Raw Thrills is still making video games. Some of their most recent or upcoming games are all VR themed. So we know that the future of arcades is probably heading more so to VR, but that's okay. VR games are fun. We love VR. True that. So Eugene Jarvis is still cranking out video games. Williams as a company ended up being bought by Midway, I believe. Williams Midway. Midway Games now owns Williams Entertainment. They ended up making a 3D remake of Defender in 2002. And that's really all I have to say about that because there's nothing of note on that game whatsoever. It doesn't rate well. It doesn't get recognized. It's pretty much just a game with a Defender name on it. That's it. So. That's it. That's all I have. That's it, Dave. That's it. No more. Defender got remade in 2002 and the series hit a wall. And so too does our story. (laughs) Fair enough. It's bound to happen. There were a lot of other great things that we looked at today. You know, we, we talked about, you know, things that you can learn more about if you want to, like how laboratories or Resident Evil 2 that we covered in our this weekend video game history. So if you want to take a look 
at any of those any of those other topics you can find old episodes of our video game history podcast anywhere you listen to your podcast or on our website which is www.memorycardlane.com rob what else can people find on our website well dave you can find a calendar of our future episodes you can find a link to our discord where you can come hang out with dave and i you can find a link to our patreon where you can get access to ad free and unedited episodes of our podcast and you can also get links to our social media. I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we tell you one story from the current week in gaming history. Game, person, technology. It's just about something relevant to this week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. And as we put these stories together for you, we do the research, we sit down, we write the tale, we learn things. Every week we learn something new. And then in turn, we get to take what we learn and we get to teach you. And it's this really beautiful cycle of teaching, learning, teaching, learning, and every week... Uh, acknowledging said cycle, we like to talk about what we have learned every week. So, Rob, I will start with you. What did you learn? Well, Dave, I learned everything. It did was you? a whole lot. I mean, about this situation uh, or this uh, the game here. But yeah, there was. it's all new to me. Never having played it, seen it, heard of it. But I still think that my big takeaway is that uh, it's the EEPROM chips going up in smoke. That's cool. Yeah, it's you know, it's one of those things. It's just something so minor that could cause everything to fail. And they were somehow still able to get another one made and get put on display. So it's it's cool that they were able to do that. But it just it just goes to show you man you always want to have a backup very true obviously it's not always possible but whenever you can just have a backup ready because you never know when you're going to put a chip in backwards true statement what about yourself dave what's your big takeaway big learning point of today the his the so related to this episode the career of eugene jarvis was new to me i wasn't familiar with him or his work i'm not a big defender fan I mean, I know of it because, again, it dominated the sales charts for years. So, you know, it's a game title that comes up over and over and over. Um, but really, it's not. It's not anything that that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm that familiar with. But I would have to say my biggest takeaway, my favorite thing wasn't from this episode. It's something that will end up in a different episode. But since it's like a year away. I will still talk about it. So reading about the pinball machines got me a little bit into the history of pinball. And I learned that at one point pinball was outlawed in most major cities because it was seen as a gambling device. And there's a famous picture in which the mayor of New York LaGuardia, which we know it is an airport now, but that was a guy at one point is taking a, I think a bat, it might be a hammer, to a pinball table. 
and they collected all these pinball tables from all these establishments and they dumped them in the harbor in the river. I think it was the river. Um, and so there's a famous picture of him beating on a pinball machine. And I never knew that there was a moment when pinball was that close to not existing. I mean, it didn't for a while, but eventually they, they relented and gave it back for various reasons. So that is pretty crazy, Dave, which is cool. I actually added as I got down the rabbit hole and did research, I started to put it down. I added a history of pinball episode to next year's uh, slate early next year, actually on the day, January 21st is the day that it was outlawed. So that week we're going to cover the history of pinball, but uh, I thought that was fun. I never knew that before. It is fun. Definitely agree with you there. Awesome. Well, before we take it out of here and look towards next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us to have you here, and we hope you enjoy the ride. So thank you. All right, Space Cadets. All right, High Score Heroes. We've soared through the cosmos, defended humanity from alien invaders, and along the way, we racked up enough points to throw our names up on the leaderboards. But it's time to bring ourselves down from the stars to embark on an epic journey of another kind. Next week, we'll be trading in our laser cannons for a giant buster sword. That's right. Prepare yourselves to dive deep into the sprawling world of Gaia and learn all about the history of one of gaming's most iconic adventures, Final Fantasy VII. So polish up that materia, grab those potions, and gear up for an odyssey that's sure to captivate you as we take yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do be that and that and that and that and do do.